0: Thanks for clicking play on the Eastlake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk morning, East Lake. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, I'm glad to be here. I love the way that you're honoring your pastors out there. I saw that it's um, Pastor Appreciation. I, lo- I mean, they're not here for it, but I bet they feel it. Um, so I, I love that you have an incredible pastor and his family is incredible. And um, and yeah, I'm I'm just glad that you're honoring them in that way. Um, I noticed after the first service, I forgot that you guys have that hilarious thing right before, so this is going to be a rough transition, just so you know. Um, But as I was preparing uh, to come and talk with you here today, I was watching the news, and I was on social media, and I was uh, made very aware uh, of what is happening with our brothers and sisters in Israel and Palestine. And so this morning, before I begin, um, if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to stand with me as we say together uh, a prayer of peace. All around us, God, chaos swirls along with our emotions, and we're trying to find our footing. We're trying to be people that follow you, even in times of upheaval, especially then. We seek the peace of your kingdom, community, in our world, in our family, and in our hearts. Will you instill in us the values of your upside-down kingdom? Where peacemakers are blessed, even if it doesn't always feel that way. The world is on fire, ignited by shouts and screams at one another. Help us not to add to the noise, but seek to listen. Help us seek to understand, instead of only trying to be understood. We pray now for those locally and globally, for whom conflict is a close companion, for whom violence wills in the shadows, for whom war is never far away. We ache for the day when warring nations will be at peace, when brother will not fight against brother. Help us raise children who sow love instead of hate, planting seeds that will become mighty oaks of righteousness and cultivating lives of justice, so that our world may bloom with your love. May we be known by our love and by our willingness to show up and stand with those who are often unheard. May we use our voices to speak when something is wrong or someone is hurt. We ask for your peace that surpasses all understanding, that we would be emboldened enough to work for peace, and humble enough to turn to you again and again. We lay down our swords and our fighting words and our deep desire to be right. If we shout, may we shout good news to the poor. If we fight, may we fight injustice. If we push, may we push open doors toward freedom. If we wrestle, may we wrestle with you. If we break, may we break the chains of captivity. If we defend, may we defend the vulnerable. If we tear down, may we tear down the walls that divide. Amen. Thank you. As I was preparing this talk, uh, I was reminded of my son, who's eight years old. His name is Hudson. And recently, well, we've been trying for years to have like a good, consistent family Bible reading devotional time, because that's what it feels like, you know, we should do. I'm a pastor. Um, And it has never been successful. Okay, um, and so I decided that we're going to do this at dinner. This is going to be our nightly dinner time thing because you got something else to do besides listen. You can eat, and you're kind of stuck there a little bit, right? So um, shouldn't be complaining. Well, my 11 year old daughter was great with this, and and so we we started. My son was yeah, we're fine. And all of a sudden, he needs ketchup. He has ketchup, but he needs more ketchup. All of a sudden, even though he's ate his chicken, now is becoming an airplane into his mouth. Um, and then, and then after this kind of, this continued, all of a sudden I see him laying on his arm like this and just, just like, like making this loud snoring noise. So finally I had it. I was like, okay, buddy, you're being rude. You're being disrespectful. What is the deal? And he said, I hate the Bible and just starts crying and sobbing and throwing this big fit. And then I'm like, well, great. We've blown it. Somebody should take our children away from us because clearly we can't. We have not uh, been a good example. So, um, but but before I you know went to the worst case scenario, I, I said, okay, well, buddy, what is it? Like what what do you hate about it? What is giving you such strong feelings about this beautiful storybook Bible that I have purchased for you? That is very interesting and engaging and has lots of pictures. Um, and he said, I just, I don't know the point. Like there's all these stories and and none of them connect and they, and they don't have anything to do with me. What is the point? And even though we might not be snoring audibly, why do we engage in this? Why are we reading this? Why do we show up on a weekend to hear more about it? And so today we're going to be looking at Exodus, which is the story of God's rescue from the of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus, we begin to see the expansion of the promise that God made in Genesis. And God promises things that can be put into three different categories. God promises many descendants, so relationships. God promises the land of Canaan, so a sense of home and belonging. And God promises a special relationship with his people, so communion. And it's my belief and understanding that the Bible is meant to be read as a progressing narrative. But humans and God wrote the Bible and set us up for a trajectory, right? That God keeps revealing and pulling his people into a bigger and more beautiful picture of who God is. And this point of view is called a trajectory redemptive movement hermeneutic. And you'll probably never need to know this term, but it makes me sound smart. And also I think it's kind of helpful to have in the back of our mind as we're reading scripture. Because the term in and of itself is descriptive. So we have a trajectory, a path of progressive progression that something follows. And that path is of redemptive movement. It's always moving towards redemption. God is continually drawing us towards life and freedom, away from bondage and suffering. This trajectory of redemption moves us from exclusivity to embrace. And this is what we're going to focus on today. I I see it as a funnel. I keep doing this motion because it starts really specific down here with Adam and Eve, and then we see it expand to Abraham and then to Mary, and to us. And obviously, there's more people in between, but we start really specific, and then we begin to include everyone. I think also as we, as we read Exodus, we see an expansion and an understanding of who God in these early biblical books. In Genesis, God's name is the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God Almighty. That's how God is referred to in the first book in the Bible. But in Exodus, God begins revealing additional names that give a deeper insight into God's character. But perhaps more than anything, Exodus is an origin story, not just an account of the Israelite identity, but the why and the how behind that identity and their relationship, that covenant, that promise with God. So a little bit of historical context, you maybe are aware of or remember the account of Joseph, maybe think of his technicolor dream coat of uh, Broadway fame, Uh, but from Genesis, where his whole family ends up in Egypt, right? They all end up in Egypt under his authority. Well, this family grows and they have more and more children and eventually the patriarchs of that time pass away. But the Israelite population continues to grow, continues to expand, and it fills the whole region, and eventually a new king comes into power who is not a part of Joseph's story. And this king is intimidated by the large population of Israelites. So he enslaves them because he fears that he cannot, or because he fears them, but actually he he more fears that he can't control them, okay? But even so, they begin to grow as a population, and they become hated by the Egyptians, because their leader has taught them to oppress, right? The Israelites to the Egyptians are the others, okay? Now Moses, who we're talking about today, is an Israelite, but because he was adopted by Egyptian royalty, he's exempt from this oppression, from this from this racism. But in a fit of rage, an Egyptian, and after realizing what he has done, the implications of his choices, he runs away out of fear. And he flees to the desert, which in scripture is sometimes a literal definition, but it's oftentimes figurative as well. Now, the wilderness or the desert is not a, it's not a KOA. It's not a campsite. There are no hookups, okay? But it's a little more rugged. And in scripture, it represents several things. Confusion. There are new thoughts, new feelings and doubts. There's discomfort. Nothing as you have known it before. It's all new. And because of that, there's a loneliness. You lose relationships when you flee to the desert. And there's desperation. You don't go to the desert unless there is nowhere else to go. And because it's a desert, there is hunger and there is thirst for truth for really solid truth when you can no longer do the mental gymnastics to make things fit or make sense and the wilderness is a dangerous place and things come there to die or have been re- and i wonder how many of you are in the wilderness now or have been recently because at some point or another we all end up in our own wilderness in our own desert One of my favorite authors and theologians, Barbara Brown Taylor, talks about a meeting she had with several colleagues, that they had taken their students on this wilderness, that it opened a way, and he said that there was something about the riskiness of it all, that it opened a way, a world up to these students that a classroom never would. And he said that even after they went back to the classroom, they seemed to be more willing to take risks with each other as well. And when he was done, another teacher raised his hand and said, excuse me, um, but were your students ever in, in real danger? And the first teacher said, oh, no, I would never let that happen. And the second teacher said, well, if there wasn't any real danger, then it wasn't actually the wilderness. Because in a real wilderness, even in the name wild wilderness, there has to be something that can kill you. There's a death of identity. There could be a death of certainty, of your old community, or as life as you've known it. All that you thought you understood is being threatened in the wilderness. And anything that reveals how fragile you are or how fragile everything is, is threatened. The desert is the place where that which once could be ignored can no longer be ignored. There is no BS in the desert. I hope I can say that here because I just did. And this is where we meet Moses today. He's an Israelite adopted by royalty whose inner demons come out. And in an act of rage, he murders. And he's so consumed by shame and confusion that he's now in an identity crisis. And he finds himself in the desert. And that is where God meets him. So let's start in Exodus chapter 3, verse uh, 2. The Lord's mess was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out that amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. When the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, I'm here. Now, I'm going to pause there. Ancient history tells us that people believed that God or God's plural dwelled only in special holy places like temples. Places that were sacred, set apart, clean, pure. And often this story is taught in accordance with the belief that God came off a throne to meet Moses, but in order to do so, he needed to create a holy space with flames in order to make it pure. To only In order to make it holy enough that God could encounter humanity. But like with most passages of scripture, there might be another way to look at it. And I, and I think, in my opinion, it's a way that's more consistent with the incarnate God that we see in Jesus in the New Testament. It's a way that says that God is in all things and holds all these things together. One that says that the bush has always been burning because the ground has always been holy, because God has always been present there and here. In fact, it's not God that's new to this scene, but Moses. Moses' eyes, his perspective, his understanding of reality, that woven throughout the passages of scripture is a significant and life-altering truth that God is pleased to dwell in you both the personal you and the universal you and us. In the account of the burning bush, God is beginning to prepare humanity for Jesus. God entering into his body. Think about that for a minute. What does your body feel like right now? Does it feel good or bad or maybe so-so? Because through the incarnation, God inhabiting a body, God is preparing us For the Holy Spirit. Because our body is the temple. It's holy. And it's sacred. And whether we believe it or not, whether it blesses us or hinders us, it was created perfectly by God for the indwelling of God's Spirit. And God delights in that indwelling. Each body uniquely made for holy moments every day. Whether your body is healthy or sick, whether it's mobile or stationary, whether it's black or brown or white or male or female, whether it's blemished by the world or decorated for the world. There's a pastor named Jonathan Puddle who puts it this way, God isn't fussed with carved stones and stained glass windows. God loves your stains and the windows into your soul. Why? Because God longs for us to soak in the divine life through our skin and our hair and our eyes and our hands and our toes and our lungs and our guts. He longs to encounter us in our own temple. Now don't, miss, don't mishear me that I'm saying that our bodies are God because that's idolatry, and I'm not saying that, but rather our bodies were created by God, God placed in us, the Holy Spirit. We are not far from God as we often tend to believe. There are maybe fewer hoops to jump through than we've been taught. That in fact, the Spirit of God is closer than the air that we breathe. Now, in the New Testament, again, think trajectory. We're moving ahead here. There's more inclusivity, right? It says this, we have known and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who remain in love remain in God. And here it is, God remains in them. Sorry, take off your sandals, Becomes God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. As in many cultures, the removal of shoes signifies respect. But also, specifically in ancient culture, it represents submission. Being barefoot is vulnerable. God is asking Moses to be vulnerable, to be open to what God wants to show him. And I think there's actually a few more reasons why God asks Moses to remove his sandals When our kids were little and uh, both of them went through seasons where naps weren't always easy. And so while they were sleeping, did we put on our heavy snow boots and start stomping around? No. We took off our shoes. With with, With bare feet, we not only walk in humility, but we walk softly and gently. Instead of stomping on others loudly and aggressively, in the name of power or maybe pride, we walk lightly in love. Not timid, not pushed over, but softer, maybe with less of an edge. We take steps of love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. With our bare feet, we also, how many of you are gardeners? Does anybody here work in a garden? Okay. When, you, when you're working in the garden with both your hands and, and if you have bare feet, you are acknowledging in a way that you are a part of a whole. You get to feel the dirt, right? You're a part of, of the earth and the world and other people and, and humanity, and the world is, is no longer something to destroy in order to elevate ourselves. That's a mindset of Pharaoh, of empire, and of worldly power. But instead, we become anti-Pharaoh. We become liberate freedom for anyone. Overpowering is not freedom. Being able to love without boundaries, without judgment, To love sacrificially and lavishly, that is freedom. And we, like Moses, become the anti-Pharaoh by removing our shoes. And then God introduces himself. He says, I am God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, typically, if we look back a little ways, it says, I'm the God of your fathers. Like, in other words, I'm the God of your ancestors, It's more general. But in this case, God says this, the God of your specific father, Moses. He personalizes it. And through this, he meets Moses exactly where he is. And essentially, he says, you look very confused and scared. But listen, this is a family thing, okay? You're actually deeply connected to me. And I know you, and you're going to get to know me too. We are going to get to know each other. This is about our family. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cries of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and to bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites all live. Now, the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So get going. In other words, I see the pain of my people, and you are going to fix it. And God identifies in this small passage passages the promises that He's made in Genesis. We see the descendants, the relationships, right? I, he says, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cries of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. He talks about the land, that idea of becoming, of home. I've come down to rescue them. He lists all the groups of people. And he identifies the relationship with God, with communion. He says, now the Israelites' cries of justice have reached me, and I've seen just how much the Egyptians have have oppressed them. So there's that communion with God. There's a poem called Dark Night of the Soul, and it's by St. John of the Cross, where he talks about fire and the purification process. So if you can picture throwing a log on a fire, as the fire encounters the wood, the fire is trying to turn the wood into what? More fire. To unite with the wood. To make the wood more like itself. And as the wood heats up, it doesn't, it doesn't reach a state of perfection, but instead becomes uh, the flaws and the blemishes come to the surface, right? It's charred and a little bit disfigured, and it keeps burning. Reaching unbearable temperatures until it gives in, combusts, trinity, and becomes one with the fire. This is the metaphor for Trinitarian living. Trinitarian is in the Trinity. God creates us with the mindset of unity, both with, with each other, and with creator, into this flow and relationship of the Trinity. Like the fire and the wood, there's a great becoming. And this is Jesus' prayer for us before he dies. Again, we're on that trajectory, right? He says this, I pray that they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they can be one just as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. To bring my people out of Egypt. We're going to do this together because together is the only way. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will show you that I am the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is a pivotal moment in biblical history because God reveals a new name. And especially in these early books of the Bible, names are very important. And this name is Yahweh. And it's a name that becomes the most frequent name for God. If you look in our English Bibles, it's the capital Lord. It's L-O-R-D, all in caps. And it became such a holy name that it wasn't even allowed to be pronounced out loud. And yet it is a name that is limitless. Moses does not want this task. He wants liberation. But he's afraid, he's terrified to be the liberator. His first objection is who am I? Who am I to do this? And God's response is I will be with you. You have to trust me. And it's it's kind of funny in that Moses is asking for a sign, right? And God essentially says, here's here here's your sign. Go do what I've asked you to do, come back here and then I'll give you a sign again, trust me. But that's not enough for Moses. And rightly so. This is a a big task. So he objects again. He says, I can't just say that that God is with them, right? That's not enough. What name should I give them? Moses wants actual backup. He wants a powerful name that Pharaoh will say, oh my gosh, by all means, if, if that's who you're talking about, take your people and go. It'd be like trying to get into, I don't know, an exclusive restaurant and saying, well, Taylor Swift said I could get a table. Instead, God resists any name that would limit him to the here and the now. God can't be limited to a name. Instead, God keeps himself open for the future. Right? Allowing for a more radical translation of this nameless name. I am As I will show myself to be. And as we see in Genesis, in the beginning of God's promises, we see in Exodus this progressing. It's not finished, it's not complete, but it's progressing. And in God's name, we see this too. This is not the full revelation of me. I am as I shall show myself to be, Yahweh, unboxed, without bounds. So at this point, my son would be loudly snoring. And so I want to ask us the question, why does this matter? Why are we going back so far in the Old Testament, glory of God in a scraggly bush in the desert and he is awakened. After he runs away, there's a stripping down for Moses, right? He he goes from a place of power and privilege to the wilderness, the darkest, the darkest place, and after seeing the glory of God in the ordinary, then And not until then is he ready to lead his people out of oppression and he starts a revolution. This is what it means to be the church. He tried doing this before, right? Before he entered the wilderness, Moses tried to liberate. He tried to do this work with his fight, with his encounter with the Egyptians, but he didn't fully understand what it meant to be beloved by God. He was overcome by pride and violence. and He took matters into his own hands, and as a result, he killed another of God's beloved. He tried to do God's work without God. Yet at the burning bush, Moses sees that God dwells in all. And until he realized the glory of God, Moses could not be a liberator. Because even though he ran away from Egypt, the ways of Egypt were still in him. Conquering, winning, pride, power. Once he could perceive God's glory in all moments, he could be free. He could be liberated so that he could become a liberator. And the same is true for us. When we see God's presence everywhere, in everyone, and in all things, we realize that every step we take is on holy ground. Because it's all holy ground. And in Christ, the, the chosen people are the entire human race. And the holy ground is the whole earth. Now what do we do with this? Well, we look for the burning bush. The burning bush, which has always been burning, because the ground has always been holy, because God has always been here. And we allow that to shift our perspective, and we pay attention in order to look for the glory of God in the wilderness, if that's where you find yourself, and in the ordinary. And we listen for our name Moses, Moses because you are a holy place where God dwells. We take off our shoes. We walk in humility and love, as Jesus showed us. People over product. And like Moses, we become consumed by the fire of God. And may God, Yahweh, I am who I will show myself to be, be bigger than we could have ever believed as we are liberated to become liberators. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word that even though we may think it's boring or irrelevant, God, you show up in it and you are the hero of it all. But this isn't really about Moses or anyone else that are in these pages. But God, it's our story too. That we are a part of this. We are a part of the redemptive work that you began so long ago and continue to do today. God, you are who you say you are, so, so let us pay attention. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear who you are in our lives so that we can further your kingdom with your love. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, EastLakeTriCities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.